0: formulas. Quite a lot of you probably do know me, but for those who don't, um, I've been coming to G2 now, I'm trying to think how long i about two and a half to three years, I think. Um, I've just recently been uh, asked to go on call team, which is very exciting. I'm also involved in the worship group. I lead worship and play the drums from time to time as well. Um, I have a lovely family. My wife's there and one of my daughters, Grace, and also my, my brother-in-law is here and my sister's. In the kids' group with her children and Esther as well. Um, also, I have one special friend with me today. I'm sure most of you know um, Luke Smith And He's got Colin the Colon. I named that, by the way. I'm very proud. But I have a special friend as well, and he lives on my head. As you can see on the picture, I have a little hair, and the girls, <laughs> my daughter, call him Larry. So if you want to see Larry later, Do come and see me, no matter what I do, no matter how many times I've shaved my head, this wretched hair always grows back in the same place. So uh, yes, that's Larry boy. So uh, anyway, let's get on with the talk. So um, we've been looking at Galatians, we didn't last week, but two weeks before that we had been. Uh, So a quick reminder about what we've looked at. So it was written by Paul, and it was written to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia around 49 AD. And it was a letter telling off the Galatian churches of Peter. Paul's saying, like these cool dudes at the bottom, saying, hey man, listen, you're getting it all wrong. That was my impression of Miriam just for you. <laughs> uh, anyway, Ewan. Ewan is going to come read it. We're going to look at Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21. I think it's on page 811 on the Bible's on your table, if you want to turn to that. I don't know. That's
1: So if you want to follow it or, or just listen, um, Galatians two eleven twenty one says this. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. For before certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision party. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you forced Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We, who are Jews by birth, And not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Christ died for nothing.
0: Thanks, you, So let's see what's going on. So, verse 11 to 12, it's on the screen. Let's just read through that. So, when Cephas, it was called Peter, that's the other name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision party. So this this church was very multicultural. If you move on to the next slide. It had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So Gentiles were, like Christian said in the first talk, they were just the others, the other people who weren't Jewish, basically. That's who the Gentiles were. Now, but one part of this diversity was making the church start to lose touch with the truth of the gospel. So Paul is wanting this to stop. And that's why he wrote this letter. Because what was happening, James, who was one of the other apostles, had been sent, sorry, James had sent some of his friends to the church, and they were creating a bit of tension and aggravation. So these friends were part of a Jewish Christian sect called the Circumcision Group or the Circumcision Party. Oh yeah, come on, clap, everyone. It's a Oh yes. Keep the music moving. So during this week, I thought, what would it be like to do a circumcision party nowadays? So I decided... To do a Facebook group, because that is how we do everything nowadays. So we set up a circumcision party Facebook group, which is on now. Who's coming? We've got Tom over there. Where are you, Tom? Well done. Thank you for joining the party. Dave Mason down there at the front. Gareth Frank. I don't even know if he's here. He said it was so big, he was coming. He's got scared, I think. And then Tom hopes he doesn't actually come to duty, but he said I really'd like to have a job. Thanks very much. Probably not the sort of party you want to be at, is it? Not bring a bottle, but maybe bring a knife. (laughs) So what does this mean? Well, what this group, the circumcision party, believed was that salvation, or the way that we can have a relationship with God to be saved, was found in Jesus, but a little bit extra. Or I guess you could say a little bit less in terms of circumcision. So the Jewish laws became that extra bit. And in the case of what they were doing here, it was about the clean laws, and they were talking about the way they eat and who they eat with and what they eat. So the laws say there's a special diet, and they have to follow this special diet. They split the dairy and the meat up so they can present themselves clean when they come to worship God. And they shouldn't mix with anyone else who has not eaten in the same way. For example, the Gentiles. We can go to the next slide, sorry. Keep going. Yeah, hippies and long hairs the way. So that's what they sort of say to the Gentiles a little bit. You know, you've got to do it our way. Because we, us Jewish Christians, are the right Christians, and you are not. But Why is he doing this as well? Well, I we think Peter was afraid of them. That's what it says in the, in, the, in the passage. He was afraid of them, so he did what they said. He was worried of the criticism he would face if he didn't go along with it. You've got to remember, this is Peter the Rock. Jesus said, I will build my church on you. He was a big deal in the early church. He was a burly, no-nonsense fisherman. Yet he was quite scared. He was feeling a bit of peer pressure. I will to give you an example of peer pressure. My sister's only heard this story today for the first time. So when I was about 15, imagine the scene. It was a a cold winter's evening. I'd gone somewhere, and I can't remember the name of it now, but we'll just pretend it's called Home on Spalding Moor. I think it was near there. I, with a group of my friends, were just having fun. We happened to wander by the local primary school, and it was an icy night, a frosty night. And so we started skating around in the playground of the local primary school and doing other mischievous things that we may not go into. Then all of a sudden there was a shout, pigs Which, of course, means pigs Not that there was a herd of pigs coming, because obviously that wouldn't actually be that scary. Or maybe it would. Anyway, in that shout, rather than doing the right thing, as I had been brought up to do as a good Christian boy, we just belted it. We ran, I jumped over a barbed wire fence, and then a dry stone wall. I have no idea how I did it, because I certainly couldn't do it now. And it was very scary, very adrenaline pumped. But yeah, it probably wasn't the right thing to do, was it? I succumbed to peer pressure, just the fact I was there at all, I succumbed to peer pressure and doing things I probably shouldn't be being doing. So, at this point, we're gonna have our first table talk. Share in groups of two or three a situation where you have succumbed to peer pressure. Go. <laughs> Anyhow, so let's move on to the next slide, please. So what's wrong, or what's in a meal? Obviously food. What's wrong with a more secluded private meal with people like me? So Paul challenges Peter's new eating habits. He says, you're a hypocrite. You're showing hypocrisy. If you remember in, in Acts, another book in the New Testament, in chapter 11, verses five to nine, Peter sees a vision. He sees a vision where there's a sheet in the sky, and out of the sheet, It's released all the unpure animals from the Old Testament. It says they're four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles and birds. And God says, do not call anything unpure that God has made clean. Then later in Acts 15, 7-9, Paul announces that the Gentiles are also made clean by faith. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. It says in verse 9, So Peter knew this was wrong. Peter knew he didn't need to eat the special food. He knew he didn't need to eat with special people. He knew he didn't need to be exclusive, yet he was still doing it. And because the great Peter did this, so did others. Verse 13 tells us that this hypocrisy was becoming contagious, with even Barnabas joining in. And the irony of that is Barnabas was a partner in mission with Titus, and Titus was a Gentile. So obviously, they weren't used to doing this yet. They were being encouraged to join in and eat the special food and do the special things so they could be right with God, but they didn't need to. Perhaps it's about cultural pride as well. Peter had been encouraged since he'd been a child in the Jewish ways. So he probably saw the unclean Gentiles as inferior to him. Maybe there's an element of nationalism and even racism in what Peter was doing. It did make me think, does this, ever happen today? Do we see that? Do we see that in the people we mix with at work? The people we play with or see at school or even here at church? Do we mix with the people we think, will we're more like them. And we believe their beliefs are the You know, we just want to find a bit of our way. But most importantly, this behaviour just was not in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter had become a Christian, he had given up the Jewish way of earning a relationship with God. When he believed in Jesus, sorry, I just read that wrong, sorry, when he believed in Jesus, yeah, he was again being pulled back into the pattern of using works to gain salvation. Verse 14 says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew." How is it then that you force Gentiles like Barnabas to follow Jewish customs? He's saying, what are you playing at? This is all wrong. Not, you don't need to live by the law anymore. So Paul had to respond to this, and this is what the, the, the next bit of the verses are telling us. So he responded by looking at the principles behind the behaviour, rather than necessarily at the behaviour itself. So Peter had forgotten that truth of the Gospel, so Paul had to remind him. In verse 15 and 16, he said it's about grace, not race. He said, we who are Jews by birth and not simple Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is saying that it doesn't matter about our heritage. The Lord did not and cannot save us. The Jewish rules were second to none in terms of what they covered, their scope. There are a great set of rules, the best in the world, and some of them are still great now. Thou shalt not kill is a pretty good rule, I think. But it's only through faith in Jesus that we can be saved or justified. Jesus has done it all. It's not about us. It says we're justified by faith. So what does justification actually mean? Verse 16 just tells us we're justified. And it it means to be excused or pardoned. If you imagine being in a courtroom and there's a judge there. Then they're giving us a pardon and saying, it's alright. You've done things wrong, but you're excused. We're going to let you off. And we do that. We're pardoned because of our faith in Jesus. And this works because when Jesus died for us on the cross... He took the blame for the wrong things that we have done and the wrong things that we will do. We would due death and eternal separation from God. But when Jesus died, he took that punishment to give us our freedom. So if we believe in him, when we die, and we stand before God, Jesus is there with us. If you imagine that courtroom scene again. Jesus is like our, our lawyer who's arguing for us. He's our defense lawyer. And he argues and he says, But my, my blood excuses this person. Now, my blood excuses Paul. And it's an unanswerable argument because it's his death for our life. The punishment due to us has been paid by Jesus' death. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, it says, He personally carried our sins in His body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And the other thing about justification is it means we are made clean, which is achieving part of the objects of the law. Obviously, Peter and his friends that were sent from James, they were trying to do things by the clean law. But actually, Jesus does this. He satisfies those objects of the law because he is pure, without us having to be enslaved to that law. So because Jesus is clean, that makes us clean so that we can then approach God and be in a relationship with him. Because Jesus has done it all. It's not about us. What I find really encouraging about this, not just the fact that I'm going to heaven and I've been saved, I mean, that's amazing in itself, but I like the fact that Paul is telling off the great Peter, a great man in the Bible, and he's telling him off and reminding him, you've got it wrong, Peter. And this is why at G2 we encourage something called accountability. So we do that in different ways. We might do it in a prayer trip. We might just meet with an individual. And it's someone who, who can challenge us on our lifestyle, how we're living as a Christian. And it's really important to do that. Have someone who can walk alongside you and say, hey, maybe you've got this bit wrong. And that's what Paul is doing. So the next question to consider is, because of Jesus' death, does that mean the the law is useless? So the law books are all found in the Old Testament. So does that mean part of the Old Testament is pointless? Well, I don't think so. Perhaps God made a mistake? No. Well, if this was the case, if he had made a mistake, then why would it be written about in other parts of the New Testament? In Romans 3, verses 31, it tells us that we are Jew and Gentile alike, justified by Christ. But this does not mean we overthrow the law. No, we uphold it. But we just view it differently. The law is no longer about justifying ourselves to God as a way to being saved. In fact, the law just demonstrates that we can't do it on our own. It's just impossible. If you look at David and Moses, David, it said in the Bible, David was a man after God's own heart. And Moses was allowed to see God. Yet they couldn't keep the law. And if those great men of the Old Testament couldn't keep the law, how can I keep the law? How can you keep the law? How can we keep the law? How can the world keep the law? It would just be impossible. So the law also shows us that to live for God is to freely serve Him. Verse 19 says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. So the law showed us that it was impossible to earn a way to God, so we stopped living for it. Before I followed the law to get a reward, but now I live to serve. So belief in Jesus means we no longer need to earn our way to heaven because Jesus has done it. He has won. But I don't think this means that we don't strive to be more like Jesus, to have more of Jesus' values. But it's not about a way to earn our salvation anymore. We serve Jesus because we love him. We serve Jesus because we love the church. We manage our lives well and in a godly way to please him and honour him and worship him. And we may well follow some of the laws, like we said. Let's not kill anyone. Should we make a pact as G2 that we won't kill anyone? Yes, thumbs up. I'm quite disturbed by how a few people have done that. I'm slightly scared now. Uh, Yeah, so it's different. We have a different motive. We serve because we love him. We serve to honour him. And it's certainly not about impressing other people. And this is what Paul was doing, wasn't it? He was trying to impress James' friends that he'd sent along, the circumcision group. And we certainly don't need to impress God. God has already shown us that he loves us more than we could possibly imagine. We don't need to do anything more to earn that love. No, we we serve to show our love for all that Jesus did. It's the least we can do. I said, but not as a way to pay back and reward him, but as an offering of love and worship to him. Because Jesus has done it all. It's not about us. So we move on to verse 20. We look at living for God. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we believe in Christ, our old life goes and we knew a new life, live a new life through Christ. And Jesus now lives in us. So as I believe, his life becomes my life. His death becomes my death. It says in the verse, I have been crucified with Christ. And his raising from the dead becomes my hope of new life. It's a bit like in a marriage where two bodies come together. We become one with Jesus and he dwells in us. And when Christ is alive in us, how can we fail to be transformed? Though it can take a while sometimes, it can take years sometimes. I've been a Christian for 29 years, and I've still got a long, 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 long way to go. But if you think about marriage again, when I married my beautiful wife was it 11 years ago? That's what I've got in my notes. Does it sound about right? Yeah, about 11 and a half years ago. Nothing changed really at that point, except we were pronounced husband and wife, and I got to kiss the bride, it was very exciting. (laughs) But over time we've changed, so we can work better together. Or I'm better at directing Heather's work. (laughs) sorry. (laughs) We live better together, we serve better together, and hopefully we parent better together as well. What do you think, Grace? No. (laughs) Okay, you see, we're a working progress all the time. So when we truly experience God's living power and love, we will be changed. And as we are changed, that means we act differently, we talk differently, we think differently, so we can give him all the praise and all the glory. I'm changing at the moment. And one of the things I'm changing to do is, over Lent I started fasting. And I only fasted for Friday lunchtimes. And uh, it seems like a bit of a wuss out, you know, I can't manage the whole day. But if you look at the size of me, you might be able to see why. But I will do whole days in times to come. But what's been great is as I've been fasting, my prayer has been changing. Rather than being focused on myself and my needs, I start praying much more widely. And as, as we fast, which means we, don't, means we don't eat and we pray instead, that means we cry out because we cry out as part of our hunger as well. And it's been amazing. It's been really transformational. And even though I've been really hungry in the afternoons, I've often left work, it's always when I've been at work, and I feel great, and it's just been brilliant, and I really enjoy my evening meal as well, (laughs) doubly. But it's been really beneficial, so God is changing me, and it takes time. So everything or nothing. The last verse in in this section says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So either Christ dying for you is everything, or it's nothing. If he died, then we try to add a bit more of what we think is like, like the circumcision group, then his death means nothing. His death can only mean something, if it means everything. His death can only mean something, if it means everything. I'll give you an example. So if I am walking along the road, And Rob Ainsworth runs up to me and says, hey Paul, this is how much I love you. And then he dives in front of a bus, and the bus screeches to (laughs) heart, Well, that would mean nothing really, except Rob was slightly crazy, deluded, or a bit of an adrenaline junkie. (laughs) But if Rob were to see my daughter Grace, I don't mind me saying this, Grace, and she was in the road, and she was playing in the road, and he died in front of a bus, And save grace, but in the process he got hit by that bus and died. That makes that very same situation very different, doesn't it? That same action can mean everything or nothing. Jesus sacrificed himself to save me, to save you. It means everything. So we don't need to earn our salvation. Jesus has done it all. So we need to remember it's not about us. The circumcision party thought it was about them, but it wasn't, it's all about Jesus. So when we serve on a team, we should serve out of love and worship, not for the praise we might get from other people, and certainly not to gain through salvation through our works, because it's not about us. When we give financially to, to G2, it's great and vital to our church and the work of God But we don't do that to make ourselves feel good or to show off to other people or because we think God will love us more because it's not about us. And when things are going well, when we get a promotion at work, when we get a first in our degrees, when our children turn out normal, (laughs) she's not even listening, it's not about us. God can choose to raise us up and tear us down because it's all about him and his grace and his love. And in this community, God invites us to learn about and appreciate our differences as people and to live together by our unity and oneness in Jesus Christ. But we do that remembering. It's not about us. Because Jesus lives in us. Our successes are from him. Our hope is from him. And our very life is from him. And without him, we would ultimately fail. So we have a couple of questions to look at now for table talk. we put them up. So what does Jesus' death mean to you and how you live your life? And how has God been transforming you? So you've got a few minutes to chat about those on your table.